0: Oh, good morning. It's an honor and a uh, delight to be back here at the podium. Um, I want to start this morning by doing a little silent poll. I have three statements, and I want you to see, just in your own mind, no hands necessary, whether you agree or disagree with each one of them. Okay? First one. The world is a better place than it was a thousand years ago. Agree or disagree. Yes or no? Okay. Number two. The world is a more just place than it was a thousand years ago. Yes or no? Third one. The first two statements I made mean the same thing. Yes or no? I thought I might get some rumblings in the room, some laughter about that. And I think that's because some of us were probably thinking, well, wait a second, I thought those were the same, but then why wasn't I thinking about them the same way? My thesis today is that um, those of us in religious movements like ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism have gotten so have gotten so used to hearing and thinking about social justice as the focus for our efforts to improve the world that we have uh, gotten used to thinking of them as synonymous. Uh, And I'm going to argue today that social justice is a vitally important part of the ideal world, but it's not the whole of it. Um, if this was a ninth-grade geometry class, remember your terminology back then, I'd say it was a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Um, I came up with the idea for this talk after a similar moment of confusion that I had myself. I was uh, trying to write a sentence about uh, wanting to do my part to um, help contribute to the world around me. And I was uh, starting to write, uh, try to help make the world a better place. And I thought, well, that's sort of wordy. Uh, Maybe I should just say, um, try to help heal the world. And then it occurred to me, those don't really sound like the same thing. If you're talking about healing the world, that suggests that there is one flaw, one weakness, one brokenness, and that if we take care of that, we're done. We have reached utopia, we have heaven on earth. Um, And that phrase, that heal the world, is in wide use among groups and organizations that focus on social justice. Uh, For example, Tikkun Magazine's motto is to help, I'm sorry, to heal, repair, and transform the world. And the Unitarian Universalist Association is using as a tagline, nurture your spirit, help heal our world. But then there's this alternative phrase make the world a better place. And to my ears, that sounds more open-ended, as if there's always more room, more potential for the world to get better and better. And that's more the perspective that I'm speaking from today. Now, let me clarify one thing that I'm not talking about. I know we have some environmentalists in the room who are already thinking, well, of course, social justice isn't the whole thing because it's only talking about people. And it's only talking about people alive today. Okay, if you define it that way, then obviously that is an important limitation. But that's not what I'm talking about. And so for purposes today, I'm willing to define society to include future generations and to include non-human species. So for the sake of uh, discussion, let's assume that uh, social justice includes environmental stewardship. And I'm saying that there's something else beyond that. Hmm, okay. Well... Um, Since we're in Washington, let me start out by giving you the policy wonks answer to this question. And then I'll give you the ethical-culturist answer, as I understand it. And I think you'll find that those are entirely consistent with each other. So um, I first had thoughts along this line almost mm, getting close to 30 years now. When I was in graduate school, I wrote a term paper for a class on philosophical and ethical issues in public policy. And the paper was on the ethics of sex discrimination in insurance, by which I mean charging men and women different rates for the same insurance coverage. Now, in 1983, the Supreme Court had just ruled that it was illegal for employer-sponsored pension plans to pay smaller annuities to women. But it was still legal, and as far as I know, it still is standard practice, uh, for insurers to charge women more than men for privately purchased annuities, because they live longer, and for privately purchased health insurance. And conversely, the insurance companies charge men more than women for term life insurance, because they die sooner, and they charge young men more than young women for auto insurance. And what attracted me to write about this issue was that both sides were arguing that their position was the one dictated by fairness. Which, by the way, I'm using interchangeably here with justice because they both refer to uh, giving people what they deserve, uh, giving them their due. The insurance industry and its supporters were saying, well, of course it's fair to charge people differently. We charge the ones who who, uh, cost us more, we charge them more. Facts are facts. And the reformers were saying, of course it's not fair, it's sex discrimination. Well, the same thing cannot be both fair and unfair. So there's a problem here. So I applied the tools we had been learning about in the course, and one of them is this time-honored principle of distributive justice. And what that says is that it is um, just or fair to treat people differently only on account of one or more relevant characteristics that they have over which they have control. Okay, well, (laughs) you can see where this is going. So clearly, um, in philosophical terms, uh, the sex differentials in insurance are not fair. End of story. But it's not the end of the policy story. It's not even the end of the ethical story because there is an argument for the insurance industry's position. It just wasn't the one they were making. If you prohibit sex differentials in insurance pricing, then you are restricting people's freedom. Now, I'm not talking about the insurance companies, they're just acting as intermediaries for the clients, for the, uh, clients, the insureds. Um, what you're saying to somebody in the low-risk sex, whichever that happens to be for the particular type of insurance, is you may not buy insurance unless you are willing to pay a price that includes a cross-subsidy to the people in the high-risk sex. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like the most important issue ethically, uh, but here are a couple reasons why it might have some significance. One is, maybe some of the people who are being forced to provide that cross-subsidy are not as well off as some of the people who are getting it, okay? And some of those people who are faced with that higher rate may say, well, geez, if I have to pay that much, um, it's not worth it to me, or I can't afford it. And so they may buy less insurance, or they may not buy any at all. And that could have some consequences. But whether you think it's a big deal or a little deal, the point is, once you frame the issue in terms of this trade-off between freedom and fairness, uh, things become a lot clearer. You're not just stuck with, yes, it's fair, no, it isn't. Yes, it's fair, no, it isn't. Um, You can begin to ask yourself... Well, how much freedom and how much fairness are at stake here, and that leads you in turn to questions like, well, how big is this cross subsidy? How strongly connected to the actual risks is the sex variable? Um, is the insurance uh, something that's connected to a basic need like health insurance, healthcare, um, and when you? break it down in, in, direction, in dimensions like those, then you can begin to understand why it is that we have, for a long time now, prohibited insurance companies from charging different rates based on race or religion, and we do not prohibit them from charging different rates based on age, all of which are variables over which people have little or no control. So. I realized that that was way more than anybody here needed to know about insurance pricing. Um, my reason for going into all that is not because it was the intellectual high-water mark of my career, <laughs> or, or not only because of that, um, but because I wanted to set up this one observation. Isn't it interesting that the insurance industry and its supporters were making a bad fairness argument instead of a good freedom argument. Why was that? Well, I think it was because on some level, I don't know if it was uh, a strategic conscious choice or just unconsciously, they were reacting to the same thing that many of us are reacting to, which is that fairness and justice seem to have a lot more emotional power boy, if you're claiming you've got justice on your side, you are really staking out the moral high ground. Now, freedom, yeah, we hear about freedom of religion and freedom of speech, they have some clout. Uh, But other types of freedom that we hear about, like freedom from hunger, freedom from fear, you know, those aren't really freedoms at all in the sense of being left to your own uh, choices. Those are, we're actually back to talking about fairness again. Um, And then liberty, Whoa, now there's a word that has really gone out of fashion, ironically enough, among liberals. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, liberty, what are you, one of those Second Amendment gun nuts? (laughs) But, you know, there's a reason why the Pledge of Allegiance we all learned in school um, talks about liberty and justice for all. And on some level, we all know this. I mean, if it weren't important, if freedom and liberty were not important, We would not just encourage you to be generous when we pass the collection plate around here. We'd turn you upside down by your ankles and shake your pockets out. (laughs) Or we wouldn't just invite you to consider going on a work trip to New Orleans or El Salvador. We'd, you know, chloroform you when you came in the door and put you on a plane. Okay, so far I've been trying to suggest that freedom and liberty are an important social uh, uh, value Uh, important and distinct from the important value of justice or fairness. But I haven't said very much yet about why it's important or what it's for. So, um, here's where we get to the ethical culture philosophy. Um, This time I am going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you are relatively new here and have not yet heard the concept, the ethical manifold? Anybody? Okay, a few, good. How many of you have heard of it and just not really clear what it means? Great. That makes me very happy because I now get the chance to introduce you to one of my favorite concepts of ethical culture. I find this incredibly moving. Um, The ethical manifold is our metaphor, our name for the ideal world. And what makes it the ideal world is that everyone is uniquely him or herself, and everyone is making their contributions to the good of the whole. Doesn't that sound good? Um, now, when Felix Adler coined that term, of course, he was thinking about human beings, and uh, it would be very interesting to talk about how we would generalize that notion to include non-human uh, species, and that's a topic for somebody else's platform another day. Um, so, with that in mind we can see how social justice fits in. Clearly, the ethical manifold depends on social justice because if you don't have it, then some people are not getting a chance to develop their unique selves. They're not getting a chance to develop their special gifts to contribute to the good of the whole. But at the same time, if you've got the ethical manifold, then some of those gifts that people are gonna be contributing have nothing directly to do with social justice. Some of them are going to be artists, or athletes, or archaeologists, or astronomers, and that's just some of the A's. <laughs> so the problem with social justice, well, it's not a problem, it's, it's a limitation, is that it doesn't encompass many other things that also contribute to human well-being. And let me go through a few of those examples in a little more detail. Okay, I said, Uh, For example, social justice doesn't really care about the arts. Yeah, okay, protest songs and uh, solidarity anthems, those are great. Uh, But a symphony orchestra? What kind of elitist nonsense is that? (laughs) Monet paintings? Who needs them? Well we do, we know that. We know that the arts feed our sense of beauty and can move and transform our spirits. Uh, this week, some of us in the in the chorus here got an email from Melody Feather, who uh, forwarded a, a a speech or an address given by the director of uh, music conservatory, in which he pointed out that even in the Nazi concentration camps of World War II, people were composing music, and the first organized public expression of grief in New York City after 9-11. What was that? That was a performance of Brahms Requiem by the New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center. So music is very important to us. The arts are very important to us. They always have been. Another one, social justice doesn't really care about athletics, even though it inspires dreams and self-discipline and expands our sense of human potential. Now, we can, there's plenty of room for argument about whether the recent Olympics were overly commercialized, whether they were too environmentally costly, whether a country with a human rights record like China should have been allowed to host them, fair game. But was anyone not amazed watching Michael Phelps rack up all those gold medals one after another? Isn't it exciting when a team like the Tampa Bay Rays goes from last place to the World Series in one year. Human possibility, human potential, exciting stuff. Um, another one, social justice doesn't really care about science, even though it contributes to our sense of wonder and awe about the world and the universe around us. Hubble Space Telescope? Subatomic particle accelerators? Are you kidding me? We're spending money on this when there are starving children? You no. Know. Um, Social justice does care about technology, but only to the extent that it helps close the gap between those who are less well-off and those who are more well-off. Cheap solar cookers for rural villagers in the third world developing countries, great stuff. The internet, Mm, maybe, maybe not. Jury's still out on that one. Artificial hearts, waste of money. I go so far as to argue that social justice isn't even particularly concerned about improving the quality of the education received by children in families who are already relatively well off, like, say, mine. So, yes, absolutely, the world needs social justice. But it also needs, we also need, things like beauty, humor, imagination, wonder, challenge, inspiration. And when we're talking about the ethical manifold, we're talking about all of that. So, I'm not suggesting that WES needs to broaden its focus to do work on all of those things. Um, society has myriad institutions and organizations that play different roles, that make their unique contributions to the good of the whole. And for us in ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism, that role is social justice, working on social justice. But what I am suggesting is as we do that, we should be aware, we should keep in mind that we are working on a part of the whole, not the entirety of it. Why should we do that? Well, two reasons. One is I think if we do, we will communicate more easily and more persuasively with people who are focusing on other parts of the whole. Uh, For example, if we want to... Uh, Well, it's a little late now, but if we wanted to argue with somebody that the D.C. government shouldn't uh, uh, be contributing to the cost of the Nationals baseball stadium. Um, Sure, there are all sorts of important arguments we could make, but um, we should be starting by acknowledging that the pleasure, the enjoyment that baseball fans get from the team and from the stadium counts for something, not the only thing that counts, but it's not ethically uh, irrelevant. And secondly, I think that remembering that social justice is one part of the whole uh, will also help us understand ourselves better and feel more integrated and at ease. Um, I don't know if this ever happens to any of you, but you know, sometimes I find myself saying now. Should I really be writing a small contribution check to the congressional course instead of, you know adding that to my donation to save the children? Um, is it really OK that I'm writing a letter to my senator encouraging him to support the uh, space program? Well, I would say that that's not evidence that you know I just have uh, some moral gene out of whack. Um, I just say that it's evidence that um, human beings have many yearnings and many needs besides social justice, and I'm responding to some of those. Now, I want to close with words from Emma Goldman, the 20th century anarchist, and these will be familiar to some of you who were here um, a year ago in December when we had a platform by the Reverend Kendall Gibbons, uh, because this is actually where I, I heard this full quote. Uh, what Emma Goodman said was, I do not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand the denial of life and joy. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Anarchism meant that to me, and I would live it in spite of the whole world, prisons, persecution, Everything yes, even in spite of the condemnation of my comrades, I would live my beautiful ideal. And either she or someone else later paraphrased that as, if I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution. <laughs> well, I am confident that Wes as a community will be fighting for the right revolution. And may we always also remember to fight for it from the right frame of mind. Thank you.